Today's episode is brought to you by Curve, a card and digital wallet service. You'll be hearing more about Curve later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. I am joined by Kevin Muir of the Macro Tourist. Kevin, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me, Jack. And I feel privileged to be on the show. I just want to let everybody know that I think that last year, your interview with Nick from the Wall Street Journal was the best interview of the year. Wow. I was not I really, expecting that, Kevin. Thank you. <laughs> I really do. I think it was terrific. Uh, it was well done. It was a great get in terms of getting Nick. And I highly suggest that anyone who hasn't seen it go back and actually spend the time and watch it. And one of the things that I think is so interesting is that so much of the narrative around the Fed and what they're going to do is all this first degree thinking, first order thinking. And when you saw Nick and you saw, you understood and really kind of started to think about it, you realize that these that there's moves that are one, two, three dimensionals, three kind of moves out that they're thinking about already. And I think it was just a terrific review. And uh, and the same token, I would just kind of want to give a little heads up to all my equity friends that are going out and because the Fed has become important this last year, they're they're sitting there and they're looking at every single Fed move. And I, I've been kind of shocked at how many times we've had a Fed meeting where everyone in my stir, which is the short-term interest rate group, all those fellows are sitting around and saying, you know, it was bang on. It was exactly what we thought it was going to be. And you'll look at the front end of the euro dollar or the SOFR curve and nothing moves. And meanwhile, the, the, the equity guys are either losing their shit or going the other way. And it's just these huge moves. And so to all my equity friends, I say, you know, make friends with a, a front end stir trader because it's, it's going to help in terms of your trading. Wow, Kevin, thank you uh, for those kind words. Really appreciate it. I want to also give a shout out to another interview on Forward Guidance that aired on December of 2021 with a certain guy named Kevin Muir. Uh, and this guest made, uh, let me see a fo following predictions. Uh, you were shorting Bitcoin and buying gold. You thought that there would be a bear market in crap, that the, 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 the bull market in crap is over, i.e. speculative stocks. Uh, there would be secular inflation that would accommodate value stocks but threaten growth stocks and that uh, bond bulls would uh, have a very bad year. So like, I think four, that's either four out of four or five out of five, however many predictions there were. So uh, I, I think 2022, you had a good year. So congratulations on that, Kevin. Well, thank you very much. Even the blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and then. Uh, there we go. Uh, because you just first started talking about the Fed, uh, yeah, let's get into it. How high do you think the Fed is, is going to go? We're at 4.5% uh, now. Um, seems like it could be a 25 basis point hike in the upcoming meeting. Like, you know, there's a time people were talking about 6%, uh, but uh, yeah. So I think the big question we should be asking ourselves in terms of the Fed is not how high they're going to end up, but the pace upon which they're going to go. And on that basis, I said something changed. I can't remember, was it last meeting? Uh, there was some clear signs from the Fed and from uh, – it, at first it came from Brainerd, and then I think that you saw Powell confirm it, uh, that they had no longer felt that they had to go in 50s and 75s, and they were going to feel around. And I kind of think about it as, you know, if you're running to your bed in the dark so that you can get to it quickly, you hit a point where the first few steps, you know that there's going to be no bed. But as you get closer, <laughs> you're worried about stubbing your toe. So you start to go a little bit 
that's what's happened at the Fed. So I, I, I'm not sure where we end up. I think we could be surprised at how strong the economy stays and that the Fed continues. But one of the things that I think is important is the days of them trying to go out, get out ahead of the curve, meaning go with 50s and 75s and surprise people and push the curve up that way are gone. The, this Fed is going to behave a lot more like the Fed of uh, Greenspan slash Bernanke in 2005 to seven or whatever it was during that hiking campaign when they went 25 basis points each and every meeting. And I suspect that that's what we're going to see. We're going to see this, this, this marching higher of 25 basis points each meeting, and they're going to go slow, but they're going to be consistent. And then the other thing that I think is interesting is how quickly the market thinks they'll be turning around and cutting rates. And sure, that could happen if we get uh, a situation where the economy really uh, falls out of bed or the markets hit an air pocket. But one of the things that I, I think might surprise people is just how boring everything begin, becomes. Like that it's just no longer this exciting move in terms of we, we don't get Federal Reserves cranking 50, 75 basis points at a time or going the other way, cutting uh, in, at those sorts of levels. And uh, so one of the things when I when I think about the Fed, I think it's just going to become much less on everyone's uh, kind of front and center. And we're going to start thinking about uh, relative value amongst within asset classes, relative value within yield curves, different parts of the curve and relative value within you know industries and stocks and even countries. Mm, so much there, Kevin. Yeah. First thing, you. I think a lot of people, including myself, have been surprised by the resilience of the U.S. economy. And even though we printed two consecutive uh, uh, re negative real GDP prints, uh, yeah, I mean the GDP uh, in in the uh, fourth quarter was was much better. Um, so I, I want to ask. You said, um, yeah. What, what do you think about recession? Because it seems to me. We talked about the yield curve because the yield curve is so inverted and there are multiple there are many different iterations. Pretty much every single yield curve that exists is, is now pretty close to inversion. Um, and you know historically that precedes a recession with with different time lengths depending on on the curve. But I'm kind of of the view that yes, you know we we may not get a recession for a few more months or it may not happen. Uh, you know until the people who've been calling for a recession. Uh, you know there are a lot of people who are too early, but it will come uh, because. And I'm pretty sure that that's the way it's going to go. Do you think that, yeah, what do, what do you think about that view? Well, wouldn't it be something if that indicator that everyone is so sure always works and is foolproof because it's worked since, what, 1962 or something? Um, wouldn't it be something if it actually did start to break down? And I know that's sacrilege to even say it. I saw uh, Ed Yardini, one of my uh, favorite economists on Bloomberg the other day, and he kind of suggested that maybe the yield curve is no longer giving the messages that we think it is. And maybe what the yield curve is signaling instead of the fact that we're heading into a recession is that in interest rates are coming, or sorry, inflation's coming way down. So I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of, I think that there's a lot going on and anybody who tells you they know for sure what's going to happen, meaning that like we're going to for sure have an, you know, a recession in the la in the next six months, they're kidding themselves because if anything, these last couple of years have shown us that we don't understand as much as we think we do in terms of inflation, in terms of the economy. All you need to do is reach 2020. And at that point, most people weren't worried about inflation. In fact, they were worried about deflation.
interest rates were going way lower. And if you went and looked and, and took the message that the bond market was sending you at that point, you would have expected a 1929 style, you know, depression. And yet just the exact opposite happened. And one of the things that I believe that a lot of the market, the Federal Reserve, and even the, the people who have been pushing for this policy themselves, the MMTers, that they've underappreciated is the power of fiscal. Meaning that when we went and did fiscal in, uh, during the COVID crisis, uh, first of all, America did way, way more fiscal than anyone else in the world. And I, I think that's a, uh, something that's not really appreciated in that most people look at it, the, the stimulus that was applied and they look at the guarantees and they mix them up with the actual direct fiscal stimulus. And I don't know about you, but if somebody says, we'll guarantee your a loan to you for the next two years, that's a lot different than someone saying, I'll give you, you know, this money for you to do what you want with it. And I think that the U.S. was over 25% um, direct fiscal stimulus, and the next closest country was Australia at 18, and most other countries were below that. So part of the reason that the U.S. economy did so well was that there was so much fiscal stimulus put into the economy. And that's also part of the reason that you had so much inflation, and, and it's also what part of the reason that we see that everyone is still confused about why the economy isn't rolling over faster than we expect. And the reason is, is because we, we uh, fixed balance sheets, uh, kind of improve them by just absolute, just bonkers uh, levels. The, like 24% of GDP was just sent out there direct with no sorts of uh, strings attached. It was just given to people. And then there was kind of surprise that we have a strong economy. I'm, I'm not surprised. And uh, one of the things that I think that when we're trying to figure out what's going to go on and one of the reasons we're having trouble figuring it out is because we've never done this before. Right. Yeah, so it's that uh, strength of U.S. consumer balance sheets in large part because of that um, fiscal support from the government that, yeah, it was a reason why the economy was so strong uh, coming out of 2020 and in, in 2021 but it's my understanding, you know, not a government expert by at all, but uh, that, you know, a lot of the most of those programs are are over. Right. I mean, I guess you still can claim some sort of tax break if you're a business, but uh, all those, you know, people being sent checks, that's that's been over for a very long time. Uh, you know, rental relief, it's over. Forbearance, it's over. Uh, and, and you know a lot more about this than I do. But um, it, like, would, would, wouldn't wouldn't for that trend to continue the those um that the fiscal support still have to be in place? Well, you're correct. First of all, the question is, if, if people saved, which they did, how long does it take them to run down that savings? And, and that's what we're in right now. Even though we're cranking rates, we're surprised that the economy isn't slowing down as much as we'd expect it to do. And the reason is because the consumer still has cash on the balance sheet and they're continuing to spend. So this ends up being a game of trying to decide you know, at what point does the consumer finally run out of money? What point does the consumer finally get too scared about the increasing rates and just turn over? And what happens from there? And it gets even more complicated because during this period as well, we had a situation where we've never had more people leave the labor force. Basically, a, you know, a whole waft of, of uh, boomers just decided that's it. 
I'm going to retire. I have enough and I'm going to go do something else. Life is short. And it's confusing and making very making lots of different cross currents. And one of the things that I think we could be surprised about is that everyone thinks that the economy is the same as the stock market. It's not the same. And we could get a situation where the economy does fine, yet the stock market continues to bleed. And I, and I do think that that's probably the most likely scenario is that stocks just don't go anywhere. And I know that doesn't make very exciting news and it's not very kind of, it's not what people want to hear, but I suspect that we'll just, the bulls and the bears will be just disappointed in that it ends up being more boring. Right. Uh, yeah. Great point about the stock market and the economy being different things. For example, you know, the economy was at its worst in March, 2020, but that was the best time to buy stocks. Right. Likewise in the last year. And I, um, just realized this today while going through your uh, latest report from the macro tourist, and we can put up some, some charts later, uh, the German stock index, you know, the economy in Germany was horrible in 2022 because of ga gas prices, you know, crypt the entire economy, but the stock market uh, did pretty much the same as the S and P 500, even though the U S economy was much more resilient. Oh, and by the way, that's taking into account the strength of the U S dollar. That's yeah. already, that's yeah, that's all. That's not, that's not because of the Euro, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really important point. And just one point about it going to be boring. Uh, I just want to, I did a little bit of math before our show here, and I went through the last uh, kind of 70 odd years of S&P history. I went back to right after World War II, and I examined the high and low, and I figured out a percentage, like a range that it trades at, okay? And... I then looked at the last four years. In 2019, we had a 33% range. In 2020, we had a 72% range. 2021, we had a 31. And 2022, we had a 38% range. Well, almost two-thirds of the time, 65% of the years are actually less than 30%. So we just had four years that were bigger range than the last kind of 71 years in terms of the distribution. Then we look 49% of the years, almost half, are less than 24% in terms of range. So let's just assume that right now we're at the middle of the range. We're what, 3,900? If we have a typical just run-of-the-mill 24% uh, range, that means we're going to have 12% on either side of this. So that means we have a high of 4,370 on the S&P and a low of 3,430. And if we do that, I think there's going to be a lot of people are going to be surprised at how boring the stock market is and how it ends up being that it's not the exciting place that they've thought for the last kind of three, four years. And I think that's much more typical. I've been around and doing this for a bit. And I, I, I remember all sorts of years where it was just kind of 20% and it was boring and that's what's starting to become. And I think that to some extent, the U S has to grow into their valuations and that's what we're going to experience. And we're trying to also balance these new higher rates so between all these things, we're probably going to have uh, uh, a mediocre stock market, and there's probably going to be better places to be than the U.S. stock market. Right. Yeah. And so two big themes. One, things are going to be boring or less uh, exciting than people expect. And uh, well, but I also just want to say that um, the stock market crash of 2022 really was not a crash. It was a uh, implosion of tech stocks of individual stocks, some of which are down, you know, 98%, some of which are only down 50%. Um, 
but the entire S and P 500 index, if you owned a diversified, you know, uh, a basket of stocks, the stock market did not, you know, crash. There were, there were no weeks where the S and P 500 was down 15%, right? It was no denouement, like some, you know, some, some like dramatic thing. And they, any time there was a, a bear market, it just ground higher and then it ground lower. Uh, the real volatility was in, was in the bond market, right? Oh, 100%. And that was really the big surprise to a lot of people is that how bad the bond market. And then the other big surprise was the fact that bonds ended up being positively correlated to stocks or, or the one and the other stocks ended up being positively correlated to bonds. And that was something that we haven't seen basically since 1982. It, it's been a long time. And if you think about how much of modern portfolio management is based upon that negative correlation, that was the thing that really ended up hurting investors. Whether it be the 60-40 portfolio, which means you put 60% of your uh, your assets into stocks and the 40% into bonds, or whether it be the risk parity portfolio where you go and you buy stocks and you lever them up with the long bond position, they both benefited in that usually when you had a situation when your stocks were going down 30-40%, bonds were up. Yet in this case, it was bonds going in dragging the stocks down. And I always said this, that people expected the bonds to be kind of a ballast to their portfolio. And I said, be careful. It could be the anchor that drags your portfolio down. And, and that's exactly what happened. And one of the things that I worry about is that everyone's assuming that you know, we've had two years down now in the bond market. We haven't ever had this in the history of the Bloomberg aggregate bond index. We've never been down two years in a row. So I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to say we're going to have a third year but I will say this, that everyone's expecting a, a positive and great uh, return in the bond market. I think in real terms, meaning after inflation, we could be surprised that bonds continue to not offer the benefit that we think they should. And that it ends up being much more the, the, the bond market struggles. And then that is one thing that I've, I'm it's, it's one of my continued themes, even though uh, it's, you know, bonds are just so bombed out in terms of how, how much they've been down. I'm not going to go and say you should be shorting bonds here, but I will say that if you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to go out and buy bonds because the economy is rolling over. Well, I have news for you. Everyone's already done it. The inverted, the curves inverted huge. And I actually think it's one of the um, kind of, one of the thing, big things that might be different this time is that the, the bonds don't end up saving you even if we do get a recession. And going back to, you know, Ed Yardini says that maybe the bond's sending the wrong message. Who knows? I'm not sure. I just think that because so many people have knee jerk kind of run into bonds because they're worried about the stock market and worried about the economy, that we've had a situation where the bond market, the, the yield curve has become so inverted so quickly that it seems to me that the trade's gone. And I know a lot of people say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. We're going to have this huge implosion of the economy. And next thing you know, that we're going to have bonds back down to 2%. And listen, it could happen. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this, maybe nothing changed. And that really this bond bull market from 1982 to 2020 is going to go back and resume and we're going to be back to zero interest rate policy and that this was just a, a bad couple of years. But I actually don't think that. And, I, and I'll tell you why I don't think that. We had during those periods from 1982 all the way to 2020, 
a reliance on monetary policy as the way to fix the economy. Every single time the economy slowed down, they lowered interest rates. And it ended up being that every low on the interest rate, like they lowered it and then they got the economy going. And then when they found when they raised rates, they had to raise rates less because each time there was more and more debt in the system. And that was what was happening is that we were getting a situation where the lows were lower and the peaks were lower. It was a, a, a kind of secular bond bull market. And for the first time, since 1982, we actually had a situation where when the Fed raised interest rates this time, they went above the previous peak. If you think back to it, the previous peak was two and three eighths or two and a half or something like that when, when Powell went and did his long way from neutral and then the economy rolled over. Well, this time we're already at four and three eighths or whatever it is on our way to five. And so the cycle has been broken. And that is one of the things that I think not enough people are giving credence to and thinking about why it's been broken. And I go back to that fiscal. And yes, you're absolutely correct, Jack, that right now fiscal is um, a negative. We're actually reducing the amount we spend and, and, and that's no doubt about it. But I contend that what changed in 2020 is the attitude towards fiscal and the willingness to use it. And if we go back and just think about the great financial crisis in 2008, there was the Tea Party. They were doing the exact opposite. They went and the economy went into the, to the crapper. And what did they do? They cut government spending. They said that the problem was that we did too much. We have too much debt and that's why we have to cut it. Then 2020, they go, well, listen, we didn't, you know, we made this mistake last time and now we will go and we'll do fiscal. And I contend that they, they went and did way too much fiscal. And, I, and, and it really kind of pisses me off about how the MMTers won't just admit it. The MMTers, and, and I'm very sympathetic to MMT, um, but having said that, when you go and you, you say that the government never has a financial constraint, it's always a real resource constraint, and then when you go and get, so they've always argued that inflation is the, is the restraint. And then we get inflation and they go, well, no, 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 that's, that's, that's really a supply side problem. And, and I have no doubt that supply side had a, a, you know, a, a part to play in this. But at the end of the day, we did too much fiscal. And instead of learning from this and saying, listen, this was a great uh, win in that we ended up having very few people getting themselves into trouble in terms of food lines and, and, and problems. Like remember back what everyone was imagining in 2020 in terms of this was going to be a 1929 style depression and things were going to collapse. It ended up being the opposite. And all that we should be saying is, okay, so we understand now that fiscal is more powerful than we ever imagined. And yet, so we should be careful with it. And we should agree that we did too much of it and, and tune it better for next time. But regardless of all that, Jack, I, I think that they've, the one big complaint about MMT is that once you teach the governments that they can spend, they'll have trouble controlling it. And I'm sympathetic to that. And I don't think we're going back to the days of governments not spending. And yes, we could sit around and argue about whether we're going to have six months, a year, maybe even two years of the government spending less. But when I'm thinking about what I'm making a portfolio, you know, a portfolio and trying to design something, I look and I say that I think that the chances of inflation being back at four, five, six, seven, ten, are a lot higher than us going back to the days when we were having trouble getting it to two. 
And at the end of the day, it's because I believe that the fiscal has been kind of the seal has been broken and they're going to go back to it. And it's just a question of when. Kevin, you're, you're preaching uh, to the choir to me about MMT. I have the exact same thoughts about uh, now that inflation is here. Just, but just I want to explain a point you said about if folks are saying, oh, the economy is going to slow down, I'm going to go buy bonds. It's too late because um, the yield curve is already inverted. So as people might, might, might have noted, you know, bonds have performed very poorly. Uh, yields have exploded higher. But what you're saying is they've exploded uh, much higher on the shorter end of the curve. Uh, so uh, – uh, a bear flattener, a bear inversion, um, right. and it, it's it's too late for that. Um, so my question for you is, uh, if um, you know, I think when at the beginning of recessions or when things really get bad, actually the curve uh, starts to re-steepen because um, the the short-term rates fall because it's pricing in a, a cut. So uh, one final Fed question. Uh, okay. Before, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so yeah, you and also earlier you said. It doesn't matter how high the Fed uh, hikes to, or it, 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 mat- it doesn't matter as much as the path which which the Fed gets there. And that amuses me, Kevin, because that is the exact opposite of what Jay Powell says. Is that he says you got to focus on the level, not the path. But I think that pa- that might be a little Jedi mind trick by Powell. So I know. Oh, I, I completely agree. What he says is a lot different than what he does. And let's face it: if he if the economy rolls over tomorrow. He's going to stop raising rates. So really what you should be concerned about is, is he speeding up or, or, or going slower in terms of what the, uh, what the market is pricing in? And this is the part that I think that people miss is they all say, oh, he raised rates 25 basis points. If, if everyone thought he was going to raise base, uh, rates by 50 basis points, then that's actually a dovish move by Powell. And so one of the things that we need to realize is that what he's saying is that I'm going to go, and if the economy continues to be hot, I'm going to go 25 beeps a, a, a meeting. And then once it starts to slow down, I will go less. But he's no longer saying, I got to go 50, I got to go 75, because I have to slow things down immediately as opposed to trying to feel my way in the dark and figuring out where that, that top part is. And, and that's the kind of, that's the, the part that kind of bothers me is that everyone thinks, Oh, where that top range is. I don't know where it is. It could be six. It could be, we're already there. But what you're looking for is how he is going to behave to the data. And I think what he's, what he's saying is that now Assuming that inflation doesn't do something really wonky, and we could we could argue about what that is, but assuming that inflation doesn't do something very wonky, we're just going to march it higher as long as until we start to get close. And I think that's a very different message than what people believe. And for the longest time, I, I, I especially the equity. Oh, the the Fed's going to crash rates immediately because they want to crush the economy. And, and I go back to that one fellow from, I think it was JP Morgan at the press conference that Powell gave. And he literally said, like, why aren't you going? If you know that, that, that you're going to be 75 basis points higher, why aren't you going and just doing the 75 today? And Powell said, that's ridiculous. I don't want to do that. I, we're, we don't want to sacrifice um, economic 
kind of well-being of our citizens to ensure that that we get there immediately and go back and like listen to it and i, I think i actually I, sh- I should have had the 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 actual quote ready for this but it was very clear when you listen to that that wall street wanted him to crank it they thought it was the best thing to do because in their minds inflation is all that matters Sorry, Ke- Kevin, wh- which meeting is it? It's the most recent FMC. No, I'm sorry. It wasn't the meeting. It was the Brookings one, the Brookings ah, Institute. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and Wall that. Street wants them to crank and uh, crank rates because inflation, you know, Wall Street represents capital and capital gets crushed by inflation. So they want inflation down immediately. So they really, although it seems perverse, they actually want Powell to be really hawkish. And that's why when when Powell did become so hawkish after making his mistake of being dovish for too long, Wall Street loved him. He was the second coming of, uh, you know, a uh, Volcker. Everything was terrific. They loved him because this was it. He was going to get serious about it. He was going to bring inflation back down. And this latest kind of it's not even a pivot. It's just a slight change in nuance. This where he's changed and said, no longer do I have to go and raise it that quick. I can go slower and try to, because we're getting closer, I can take my time to get there. And I think that go back and if you listen to the JP Morgan question in the Brookings Institute, it becomes very clear the difference on Wall Street and the difference at the Fed. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying today's show. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Curve, a payment service that gives you power over your finances. The way it works is that Curve is an extra layer on top of your credit and debit cards that gives you additional cash back on the rewards that you're already earning. Curve Card has no foreign transaction fees and you can choose to earn your rewards in crypto. You don't have to, but you have the option. Curve Card also has a feature called Go Back in Time where you can retroactively change the card used to buy an item after you made the purchase, up to 30 days after actually. A key concept in finance is optionality. When you have the option to do something but you don't have to do something, this can be very valuable in finance as well as life. And optionality is exactly what Curve gives you to do with your wallet. So check out Curve to get $20 once you've downloaded the app and made your first transaction. CurveCard is powered by Hatchbank. Terms and conditions apply. Now, let's get back to the interview. Mm, that's interesting. All right, Kevin, as promised, now let's move on uh, to your framework for understanding 2023. You have uh, six predictions. I don't know if we'll have time to get into all of them, but your uh, first and uh, one of the most important ones is about uh, U.S. stocks and the end of outperformance of U.S. stocks. Tell us about this, and I have all of the charts from uh, that piece. So if you want to refer to them, um, sure, we can do them. Why don't you just slap one up and we can talk about it? Sounds good. Let's. Uh, this, okay. this. What are we looking at here? This is a okay. chart going forty years. So back. this this is the S and P five hundred divided by X US. So it's basically every other stock market in the world except for the S and P five hundred. So you get a sense of how S and P is done versus the world. And you'll see in the 1980s to kind of we had this this rally, but then it declined into the 87 crash. And in fact, into the 89. And that was uh, Japanese stocks outperforming. Then once the Nikkei bubble burst, we had the situation where from 89 all the way to 2000, the U.S. stock market outperformed. It was the best performing uh, stock market in the world until finally the bubble crash, the, the dot com bubble burst. And next thing we know, we had what was it eight years of underperformance and during that period even though the stock markets in in the u.s were doing fine the rest of the world was doing even better and that had to do with the fact that it was 
China's entered the the WTO. There was all sorts of uh, commodity bull markets, and it was it was just um, it, the U.S. Uh, tech stocks and all those weren't the things people wanted. They wanted the Canadian, you know, oil, oil companies and the the base metal, the Australian base metal companies and things like that. Then when we, finally we had a situation where great financial crisis occurs, everything crashes, and then we go into zero interest rates in Europe. And it's just all in all, it's kind of a, a disaster throughout the world, except for the U.S. And the U.S. just eats everyone's lunch for the next, what is that, 20, 12, 15 years, the U.S. outperforms the, the rest of the world by a, by a factor of two almost in terms of when you look at it, a NASDAQ versus the next closest one. Right, and here we got the next chart shows that exactly. Yeah, exactly. So this is the returns of the various stock markets in local terms and U.S. dollar terms. And you'll see that far right one is the NASDAQ. The next one is the S&P 500. And it, it just, it, it ends up being that this, this idea that the U.S. is the only place to be the like the it, it's the asset that you should own um and, and i think this occurs for a couple of reasons and i think it's important to understand why one is because of the um makeup of the u.s stock market it definitely it ends up being that we have a period of almost no interest rates and oh sorry with almost zero interest rates and this ends up being the perfect environment for growth stocks. And although everyone might think, well, why does little growth mean that you should buy growth stocks? In terms of stocks, when they, the longest duration asset is the asset where all the growth that you're discounting is out in the future. So if you discount that growth at a lower and lower interest rate, you'll pay more and more for it. It's kind of like uh, buying a bond with a high coupon versus a zero coup a zero a bond that you've stripped. You want to buy the one with the lowest coupon because all the growth is way out in the future. So from that perspective, the U.S. did well. And then the second perspective that I think that a lot of people miss is that with the European Union, they ended up uh, putting very strict fiscal policy on on their on their countries. And this happens throughout the world. And it, although everybody likes to think that the Americans are very prudent when it comes to spending and they laugh at the Italians, I, I distinctly remember in, I think it was 2018, that it was the, the Italy was getting in trouble with the EU because they were running a deficit of two and a half percent of GDP, meaning that they were threatening to you know, to not fund Italy because they were running this extraordinarily high deficit of two and a half percent to GDP. Meanwhile, the U.S. was running 4.1 percent. And I had this piece that I wrote way back when, and I, I said that Trump is the most MMT president that we've ever had. And I know a lot of people say, no, nah, that's not, not a chance. He's, he's not, they associate MMT with the left, but that's not actually what MMT says. MMT says that you are never financially constrained. You are always real resource constrained. And, and when I looked at like Trump, I looked at him spending. And when they asked him why he was spending so much of the economy was so good, he says, because there's no inflation. And that was exactly an MMT line. Like it, it, neither the MMTers nor Trump wanted to admit it, but yet the, the, the U.S. was actually uh, the most aggressive uh, country out there in terms of fiscal spending. And one yeah, of the and Kevin, that's such a great point, and you're absolutely right. And to draw a contrast, um, President Obama uh, in 2008, 2009, 
when inflation was extremely low because we were, you know, coming out of a global recession, a very deep global recession, uh, the, the Democratic Party, um, you know, and especially the Republican Party, of course, uh, was very worried about deficits. And so yeah. no, there were no MMTers in America in 2008 and 2009 in power. Uh, whereas, yeah, in 2016, passed a tax cut um, because there's no inflation. Why not? You're right. And if we go back to the, the great financial crisis, I think up until then, there had only been something like three years where discretionary spending had ever fallen in real terms on a federal level. Like it was 1962, 68 and like 94, 96 under Clinton. Those were the three years that it had ever fallen. And then what happened was after the great financial crisis under Obama, when the Tea Party was there and there was the sequestration and all that stuff, it ended up being that there was four years in a row where it fell. So to your point, you're absolutely right. It was not only were they not spending, they were actually doing the opposite. They were cutting. And that's the part that a lot of people miss because they just look at the budget and they look at the fact that it went up. But a lot of those things were automatic stabilizers in terms of things of like uh, unemployment insurance and, and welfare. Those things went up. But in terms of the actual discretionary spending, they went down during that period. The government was cutting. So they were they were making a pro cyclical credit contraction. Sorry, they were making a credit contraction worse by doing pro-cyclical policies, meaning that they were they were becoming it was more cyclical. They were they were cutting and making the credit contraction worse instead of being counter-cyclical and spending into the to the private sector sector credit creation. Or sorry, contraction. I'm having trouble with the words. Right. I think I got it there though. Yeah, there we go. Um, anyway, so going back to going back to the U.S. So we if we pull up that chart again and we look at it. This was partly because of the nature of the U.S. stock market, but it was also partly because of the, the spending that they did. And we just had, if we go one back and we could go look at this chart, we've had 12 years of this huge outperformance. And I believe that this 12 year way, way overinvested in U.S. stocks. If you think about it as a pension, U.S. Uh, a, a European pension fund manager, if you didn't own U.S. stocks and if you weren't overweight, you probably didn't have a job. All right. So, Kevin, in the uh, prior decade, interest rates were low. U.S. did more stimulus. U.S. had a lot of growth stocks. Perfect uh, um, sort of recipe, perfect cocktail for U.S. outperformance. And then that attracted more money. I want to flip this chart up uh, of just how after... Uh, COVID, when interest rates were even lower and stimulus was even bigger, that blue line is a you know, nearly a trillion dollars of inflows into the U.S. So now we're in 2021. The bull market in American stocks, in tech stocks, is well underway. Uh, take it, take us there. What's next, Kevin? Well, the trend that I've been talking about in terms of the U.S. doing more fiscal and the U.S. having growth stocks, COVID just lit a match and like, you know, throw gasoline and lit a match on it. Because if you think about what happened with COVID, rates went lower. So the you know, that encouraged people to buy more growth stocks. The whole trend of work from home accelerated all of the growth that we had actually seen in terms of the growth stocks. All of a sudden, the Peloton and all those companies that the U.S. is so great at, well, those were the ones that everyone wanted. And then when we combine that with the fact that the U.S. did so much more stimulus, meaning that there was so much more money out there. And one of the things that people need to remember is that they, when government spends, it is the government's debt deficit, but it's someone's credit. 
And you always people always forget that side of the equation. They think, oh, the government just wasted it. Well, yes, they did might have wasted it. But the reality is that it's someone's credit. It's someone out there has it. And that money, it goes into the private sector and it goes into individuals and it goes into corporations. And that's part of the reason that we ended up having the U.S. being the greatest stock market rally that we probably had since 2000. And I think it was a bubble as the, the 2000.com bubble. And it just blew the doors off of everything. And, and, and during that, to me, that was the end of it rally of the last 12 years of USO performance. It was the final just get me in of uh, US stocks. And in doing so, they made on a relative basis, the rest of the world really cheap. And it made it so that everyone was already way overweight this this country slash sector. And I know that it seems that the past year's decline has caused a lot of people to end up selling their their tech stocks but when i when i look at long-term money like the big money and i think about their portfolios i think that they haven't even really started to sell their tech stocks i think they're still way overweight the u.s they've been sitting there in this in this great performing asset for the last 12 you know years and this was the first year that it hurt them and the mistake that I see for with a lot of people is that they look at the stock market right now and they're going out and when they get bullish, they're going out and buying the same things that they've bought in the last couple of years. So I see this reach for um, Kathy Wood Arc stocks, Tesla, or even just Fang Matt in general. And one of the things that I will say is sure, there's going to be rallies in those things and no doubt that we're going to get uh, rippers that, that are single days. But I, I suspect that when we look back at this a year from now, if, you're, if, you're, if you'll have me back next year at this time, that, that that tech stock trade ended up continuing to leak. I, I just don't think that this is something that you want to own. I don't think it's something thing that will continue to do well. I think the world has changed. And I think that there's a lot of other great stocks out there and great countries that are under-owned, cheap as anything, and they're just better ideas. And so uh, everyone believes that this one year is, is the end of the, of the bear market in these uh, tech stocks, these growth stocks. And I remember the dot-com bubble. I remember it very well in that it was two, three years of just continual selling of those names. And it was just over and over and over and over all the time. And everyone would say, this is it. This is finally the bottom. And then it would go lower. And if you want an example of, of something that I, that I think it'll mimic in the real world, is just go look at marijuana stocks and go look at MSOS. Oh. And it was, it, it's, it's been melting for you know a year and a half or whatever it is, and it just continues to melt. And that's what I think is going to happen in a lot of these tech stocks. One of the last things I will say, I was just listening to Dan Ives at Wedbush Securities. Really good guy. I like him. He's got some great ideas and stuff. But he, he's trying to tell, like, make the argument that this is the end of the – we're approaching the, the, of the correction in tech stocks. And he actually compared it. He says, I saw these cuts similar as in 2009 
in the 01 or 02. And he says that the cuts in terms of the job cuts, he says, ultimately, it's a right sizing that leads to the next up cycle. Then he tried to tell me that tech is, is under owned in 2000 as is in 2009. And then he says, New York cab drivers are bearish. Uh, tech and I don't know. I, I don't talk to a lot of New York cab drivers. You're from New York. You might know better than me. But I, I although I think that a lot of the day traders are bearish, I think he should go and talk to people like the Switzerland, the Swiss National Bank. Just go look at those assets because to me, they're assets of U.S. stocks, which includes Apple and all the big tech stocks. I looked at it the other day. It's 29% tech represents the consensus long-term money and i think that it still dramatically overweight tech and when these trends turn they take years to unwind and i think that's the mistake that people are making so i i don't know but i'll, I'll take your word for it that many institutional firms are remain overweight technology uh kevin i would uh draw a distinction between Technology stocks, um, like many that are, you know, in the the ARC portfolio, that are basically publicly traded venture uh, capital companies that, you know, um, are, are not only unprofitable, but they couldn't be profitable for, you know, at least a year or year year to come, no matter hell or, or high water. I draw a distinction between that um, and a company like Apple, which makes money, their earnings go up. And uh, you know they just proved it to be a re remarkable business. Um, and something like Meta, where you know if it has a if, it, if it Meta crashes as it did in 2022, it's trading at you know I don't know 12 or 15 times price to earnings ratio. I mean there are there, there are gold miners and um, oil companies that are more expensive th than Meta. So isn't there some sort of valuation limit? Uh, and of course everything can go much lower than than a valuation limit. But uh, you know uh, marijuana stocks, they're speculative stocks. You know many of which are unprofitable that have a lot of problems. Um, they, I mean, they've gone down so much. It's kind of interesting, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and Apple, if, 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 you know, at some point, Apple's going to be trading at five times earnings, you know? Yeah. But don't forget, Apple was super cheap and it, when uh, Buffett was buying it. So it's been there before. It's not like this is, is something that hasn't occurred. And the other thing is, what valuation should you put on, on a company that is slowing down their growth? And I'm not disagreeing with you that these companies aren't going to make money. It's just a question is now all of a sudden in a world, instead of interest rates being, you know, one and a half at the long end or at the 10 year and almost zero at the, at the front end, what should you put on a, what valuation should you put on these companies when, when you have the, you know, two year bond trading at 5%, you know, four and whatever it is. And, and that's, that's my, my question to you. And not only that, there's a lot of these companies have, well because of that trend towards adoption of technology of people working from home and although i love apple and i and i would never sell apple short because i think tim cook is just a, a fabulous uh operator um i just what i just wonder what i would what you would want to pay for those for that growth or sorry that those earnings given that i think that the growth was juiced by the by the kind of work from home move that we've had. And I suspect that these companies will find it increasingly difficult as they get bigger and bigger. Well, it gets tougher for them as they become, uh, you know, so large. And that's, I just, I, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say, Oh, I definitely think that Apple is going to go down another half, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. And I'm not even trying to say that it's not going to continue to make money. 
and you're right it's completely different than the kathy woods like crazy stocks and but there's like there's still some out there and and it's still something that a lot of people own and and there's like uh, you know we can talk about this but there's a lot of things happening in the private markets that are showing that the the speculation is not as 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 rinsed out as you might think and that it ends in that uh, we still have some more pain to come. Yes, uh, that's a great transition. So yeah, Kevin, a, a company that um, you know is losing hundreds of million dollars a year. Uh, they have tons of share-based compensation, and they were trading at fifty times price to sales a year ago. That company has imploded in terms of the stock price. However, the equivalent, the same company, but it's traded in venture capital. Uh, yeah. All the investors, you know, it's not publicly traded. They're they're marking it as you know it's only, oh it's only down twenty percent instead of down ninety percent. Um, so yeah, tell us how severe uh, are these problems in private markets? That that's one of your macro tourist themes for twenty twenty three. Yeah, so I think that the private markets, a lot of people that aren't uh, involved in those markets don't understand how much they've grown, and it was an offshoot of the zero interest rate policy when people were like, Oh, just give me something, give me anything that can give me some yield and, or, or another way to make some money. And what private markets can be, they can be a variety of different things like venture capital, as you say, private equity. But there's another one that, uh, that I think people uh, neglect to understand how much has grown, which is private debt. And I just was looking through a report the other day and, and something, I think that, all of the private markets have doubled in size in the last six years. And what this is, is a really, um, it's funds and other, of other large endowments, basically adopting something of the Yale model. And Yale, Yale, there was this Yale model that went in and invested in, they, they, they harvested what was called the e-liquidity premium, meaning that if you bought something that was e-liquid, it should have, um, a better return because you're forsaking liquidity on this. And the, the, a lot of these pension funds have said, well, we don't need the money, so we, we don't need the liquidity, so why not go out and, and invest in these things? And it's become a little bit of one of these self-fulfilling prophecies in terms of as more people put more money into it, it's always has a bid and we've seen kind of rising prices and, and this is, this is happening on the private venture and it's happening on private equity and then the credit and the debt. So if you think about debt, it's, it's in essence just bought like uh, obligations to companies that trade that don't really, that people give and say, okay, I'm going to give this money for the next five years to this private company. And um, this has just grown by leaps and bounds. And what we've seen is a lot of really rich folks have embraced it. And one of the reasons is you mentioned is the fact that you, there's no, uh, very little volatility because you're making up the prices, right? Like, let's face it. They are, and, and one of the big kind of, uh, let's just say hooplas this year was the fact that we have here, we have almost all uh, publicly traded uh, markets throughout the world, be it stocks, bonds, almost everything down anywhere from 10 to 30 to 50%. And we have a lot of these private uh, equity or real estate funds that are actually marking up in some cases. Literally you have equity funds that are, or sorry, real estate funds that are marking up. They'll have a, a private version of it. That'll be marking up. And then the, they'll have a publicly traded read and it'll be marking down. And I, I, 
I'm not naive. I understand their argument is that they say they they'll argue that the market put too much of a premium on the REIT in at, at a certain point and that premiums being lifted out. But at the same time, I think it has to do with the fact that uh, let's just say the equity risk premium or the, or the, the, the rate upon which you're going to go and discount all these assets is an arbitrary one that they get to choose. So if you think about just the prior, a, a real estate, they can go and they can say, well, uh, you know, inflation will actually have caused their rents to go up. So their cash flows will go up. And yet, and, and if the, if the discount rate, they, that they're discounting that at doesn't go up enough, they'll actually mark higher. Meaning that if the, the, the real pain has been because of interest rates going up. And if they just choose to say, no, this is a, this is a, this is the number we have, then what the, they will see that their nav doesn't change. Now, this is this is what's occurring, and some for the first time, some smart folks have noticed this, and have started to redeem. And we had this big one, the Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust, this kind of private read. I think it's the biggest private read in the world. Like, isn't it? Like, I can't remember. Million, I think, yeah. yeah, I think it's just a monster number. And so, what it is is it's basically a read that doesn't trade on the exchange, but it just they you buy and sell you sorry you either buy or redeem your units on a monthly basis and the manager is made so that there's gating and meaning that if too many people ask for their money all at once they can say they can gate them and say no we, you know we're not going to have we're not going to allow this and they can hold it back and take their time so i think that uh, last month or last quarter for the first time they had to gate this because so many people were asking for their money out and to me, it makes sense that if something's trading at a premium to nav, you're kind of a fool if you don't redeem. Because what's happening is if you, let's just think about it. If you and I are in a, some sort of fund and we, we assume it's worth $100, or sorry, they tell us it's worth $100, but you and I both know it's not worth $100, but we have a chance to sell it at $100. Well, if I sell it and you're left with the other half and that will eventually mark lower, then I basically have just kind of stolen, not stolen, but taken, diluted you down is the right word to use there. Diluted you down because you're left with an asset that's, uh, that's worth not what it's worth saying and I've come out of it at a premium. So that gain has to come from someone and it comes from yours. So if you're sitting there and you believe that these uh, nabs are too high, You'd be a fool not to redeem. So what we had is that the, these these a lot of these uh, private funds had to end up gating. Now the interesting thing is that we just had news that it was a Calpers. I think it was Calpers is investing in this breed, this Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust, to the tune of four billion dollars. So you might say, "Oh, look, Kev, you're wrong. You know everything's fine. Calpers is buying this. You know this is great." But if you go and look at the the terms of this deal. What's really interesting is that CalPERS of Blackstone, this $4 billion, to make it so that they can uh, keep uh, their gates open, yet Blackstone has guaranteed them a return of 11 and a quarter percent. So this is a different class. So to me, this is, in essence, they are selling units because there's, in essence, a put. They're selling a put to them. They're giving them a put 
for their investment. They're doing this. Uh, so really the nav, what they're saying is that the nav isn't worth what they're saying it is. Otherwise there would be no need to do this. They would just be like this great investment. I'm going to do it. And so when I look at this, I don't know if there's a trade apart from, you could argue that maybe these private, um, or, or sorry, these alternative uh, investment managers like, uh, like uh, Blackstone and those things, they might be sales, but, uh, I'm not sure there's a trade, but I think that what we're going to experience is we're going to have continued problems in the private markets. And if anything, although I'm kind of thinking that the stock market's going to be kind of a nothing kind of year, it's going to be boring. I think it's going to be anything but boring in the private market. I suspect that this um, selling will continue. I suspect we'll find out there'll be more bodies. There'll be more surprises. And uh, I think people will be shocked how big these markets are. And I'm not sure if it's going to cause uh, kind of systematic problems. But I do think that if I was someone that had an allocation to these privates, I would be hitting bids as, as quick as I could. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, even, sorry, even just because if you think about it, we've had all of the, on a relative basis, we've had public markets where you get the liquidity back up. And then meanwhile, all the privates are still marking higher. So it, to me, it, just even on a relative basis about kind of the macro calls, why don't you, you know, you bought originally because of it was supposed to trade cheaper because of liquidity and now it's trading more expensive. And I would argue that the only reason their trades more expensive is because you can mark the fantasy and then you can take out the, take out the volatility, but are they really taking out the volatility? I would say no. Yeah. Uh, th that's great, Kevin. So there's three, uh, parts in the private markets, main parts, venture capital, which is what my analogy was from private equity, which is with mature companies that uh, give off cash flow. And then you said private debt. And I, I just want to make sure the audience heard that. Cause you're, you're, you're um, you, I don't know if your connection, uh, had a little problem. So yeah, private debt is very interesting because, you know, as uh, in the wake of the great financial crisis, big banks hold far fewer risky loans on their balance sheet, but those loans haven't disappeared. They've just moved. Um, right. to investment management firms um, yeah. uh, that are, you know, less regulated. So that's interesting. Yeah. And then, then private equity, that's so big. And, you know, that includes private real estate. Um, yeah. So, so the cost, the um, rent in rental income has gone up because of inflation and you, you, you know, putting up rents 10, 15%, but the cost of capital has gone up as well. Uh, and now you're competing with, uh, if you're a REIT, you're competing with the treasury yield, which was at zero. And now it's at four and a half percent, close to 5%. Yeah. Um, so, you know, your, your five and a half rental yield isn't really cutting it. Um, and in the private markets, that's been reflected in the private markets. It, it hasn't. And that's why you see uh, problems. Kevin, go, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, you know, I've um, other smart people. Uh, I've heard them say that it's so when you hear multiple smart people saying something, you know, I'm, I'm definitely paying attention. Um, how what do you think the knock on effects of that will be? Um, you know, I imagine it's not a great time to uh, for, for private equity. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what do you think is going to happen and how severe do you think it will be? Cause you know, obviously like, uh, sorry, you, you'll go ahead. Sorry. Well, I, I don't think it's going to be so severe that it caused these, this stock market to, to sell off in some sort of crash or anything that's, that's done by that. But I just think it'll be just another reason why at the margin, you're going to see, uh, asset markets be, struggle to do well. I, I think that the, you're going to see that they're going to, it'll be difficult for P 
people to achieve the returns they're expecting to achieve when a lot of the assets that they bought thought were, you know, marked here end up being marked a lot lower than that. So I, I, I don't, the, the problem I don't want about this trade is that there really is no trade to be had. You could argue that maybe that those, uh, those uh, Blackstone and those asset managers are, are due for some pain in the future. And maybe you think about selling those short against financials, but I, I just, I think it's, it's more a function of if you're sitting there and you're somebody that's, investing in these things if you're uh, a, a rich rich dude that's been bragging to everybody that you're that you did great this year because your privates are marking up and everyone else is being in stock markets or in bond markets that are all marking down i would just take a step back and say well you know what maybe it's uh time to, to do a little bit lightening up on those and uh and a buying of the ones that are down and sell your winners and, and, and buy some of your, uh, your losers, because I think it's, it's a rebalancing that should definitely be done. Mm. Kevin, uh, moving on, uh, you write that in the collapse of the dot-com bubble series of accounting scandals, Tyco, WorldCom, Enron, you think that there will be a similar series of, uh, of enormous scandals, uh, Tell us about that, and then you know what. What are the scandals that you're thinking of? Well, I, I do believe I, I remember very, very clearly the WorldCom bust. I remember the the Tyco one. Um, it's kind of actually funny about the Tyco, the things that the CEO did that got him in trouble. In, in this day and age, it seems like he he his he would have been uh, uh, rewarded with his stock going to the moon, and <laughs> and then and then I remember the Enron, and I think that to some extent investors see what they want to see, and during bull markets, everyone saw the best in everything, and they saw you know companies that that were going to change the world in in a variety of different ways. And unfortunately, I don't think that all the operators of those companies will end up being as um, truthful and as as, uh, uh, noble as the investors thought they were. And I I, I don't know the name be out there and be short them right away. I will tell you this, that being playing on the short side is really tough. And I and I'll let's just take like Carvana for example, mm. good friend that uh, was short Carvana and he was smart enough and he kept doing it and then I and I hit this point where I realized that, it, that we kind of midway down I think it went from three hundred to zero basically midway down at about a hundred bucks it had a rally and the rally was fifty percent it was a hundred you know so fifty percent and that's the problem with these things is uh, it's very difficult to have the emotional wherewithal to sit through those. And if you don't have the emotion, like, or you say you just trade them small, but if you trade them small, they're kind of the way that short selling works is that it gets smaller as a smaller portion of your portfolio. So you short Carolina at 300 and let's just say you make it 10% of your portfolio. Then it goes to, you know, 150 and now it's only five. So when it goes from 150 to zero, it's only another five. Your hope for is that, it, you know, you really want it to be 10 again. 
So you have to short more. So maybe you short more at 100, but then it rallies on you at 50%. And now all of a sudden you're offside. And so this ends up being the, the difficulty with short selling. Um, but uh, I think that all you need to do is just look at the different stocks that are hyped the most to get a feel for, you know, where, where there's the potential. And um, like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to talk about it too much, but it, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me at all if one of the largest EV companies that was added to the S&P 500 ends up having troubles in terms of their accounting at one point. I don't know if they will. I, I, don't, I don't have a clue. But it wouldn't be surprising. It's very, and I know that seems crazy to sound out right now, but don't forget Enron was one of the biggest, most respected companies in the world. And one of the things that I just want to kind of remind people is don't um, assume that just because there's there's auditors there and everything that this, this can't happen again. There very well could be another Enron out there. And I don't know what it is. I'm not sure uh, what it's going to be, but I do suspect that we will have them and they will be big. It won't just be small little ones. It'll be something big. And it's the old Warren Buffett line. You know, when the tide goes out, we figure out who is swimming without their clothes on. I think that's what's happening. The what Powell has made interest rates higher. They've, the cost of capital, as you so eloquently described, is has gone up. And we're going to find that some of these companies that that we thought had uh, great business models weren't so great. They were playing games. I don't. Um, and and if you can, if I can figure out which ones it is, the I, hopefully maybe I won't even I'll I'll, I'll short the bejesus out of them, and and then I won't I'll, I'll be retired in a beach in Bahamas. There we go. Just on uh, short selling, you're so right, Kevin. And you know, shorting Carvana from 300 to 100, it could squeeze from 100 to 150, and you wanted to double down at 100. So actually, you you just lost your money. And then, if you want to do prudent risk management practice and cover when it goes to 110, then when it goes 110 to 40, you're, you you don't have the position on. So yes, yeah. it's hard. And you're, it, paying, it, you're paying borrow fees. You know, that's right. The, the crappier the stock, the more expensive it is to borrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, um. So. I just want to dive a little bit deep in that because, uh, you know, Enron, that was fraud with a capital uh, F of all these off balance sheet or arrangements. There's a new thing that's become, you know, pr- uh, very dangerous. Uh, it's what Jim Chambers calls legal fraud. I think Bethany McLean, um, who wrote the book about Enron and who I've interviewed, um, uh, uses that term too, where that's like, oh, I have this company and we actually lose $800 million a year. But if you take into account, uh, you know, if you don't take into account share based compensation and you don't take into account <laughs> XYZ, ABCDEF, actually we're a profitable company. Company. And that's legal, so we're not breaking any laws. Um, so you know, when you so when you say scandal, does scandal apply like a bunch of lawyers going around and you know, uh, 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 court cases? Um, and then also, you know, with SPACs, that's additional uh, less disclosure, additional oh my god, pie in the sky. We you can do whatever you want. Um, so I feel like uh, maybe the crime is as severe, but the punishment will be less severe. I think. Uh, maybe you're right. That's a great point is that things have become so loose that uh, it ends up being that there was no actual crimes committed because they told you outright that this was the case, but then people chose to believe something else. Uh, I think there's going to be more than that, though, Jack. I think you're going to find that there was some people that were they were breaking the laws and that we're going to find them. I don't know where they're where it's going to be, um, but I suspect that. Let's just put it this way. I'll be shocked if we don't, as this um, bubble unravels, 
if we don't find that there's a stuff the, the that's Enron, the, you know, WorldCom kind of levels in the in the years to come. Yes, I, I think you've you've already seen many of those scandals, but they were small fry. You know, you had the uh, electric hydrogen truck company where the truck was actually rolling down the hill. Um, I don't think he's in jail. Um, uh, you you had a, another electric vehicle SPAC uh, that borrowed money from Evergrande. Sorry, sorry. Uh, one of the one of the biggest investors was Evergrande, the the bankrupt uh, real Chinese real estate developer. Um, but yeah, very interesting. Uh, Kevin, a lightning round because I you know want to be respectful of your time. Uh, you're bullish on financials, uh, not just in America but in Europe and Japan. Why? Well, Europe and Japan, they are just dirt cheap. Um, even in the U.S., they're dirt cheap. If you go look at uh, Citibank, Citibank used to trade two times book is trade point five book. I know all the bearish arguments. Everyone hates them. It's the it's, they think it's the end of the world. People are focused on the yield curve. They say they think that these guys go and they borrow at the short end and lend at the long end. The reality of um, ability to to trade around yield curve and things like that that's not really an issue. What these all these financials have really suffered from is the lack of worthy borrowers to lend to. And not only that, zero interest rates made it difficult in terms of uh, that whole idea of the float, meaning the, the deposits that you get in, you, um, you, you don't pay them as much as you, as you lend out for. Um, I remember in the days of Charles Schwab that they used to trade for free and they would give them all their money on the balance, meaning that they would go and hold the customer's deposits for money and then they would give them a low rate um, and then that's where they would do it. Uh, I think that what we're experiencing now is that rates have gone up, so all your loans have gone up, but none of your your checking and your savings rates are, are going up as quick. Yeah, it's a giant. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Wild, so I think that uh, it, it's that simple. We're going to see an expansion in terms of uh, kind of margins on that side. I also believe that ultimately, um, although I am worried about the economy for the short run in terms of higher rates. Ultimately, I believe that uh, fiscal has changed the game plan and that we are going to see uh, a stronger real economy um, and that we're going to be in the years to come, we're going to be surprised at how much Main Street wins over Wall Street. And even though you think, well, Wall Street isn't that the banks, but I think that lending to Main Street is is something that they're going to end up doing and, and making a lot of money on. In terms of why I like Japan and Europe, they've their economies have just been a mess. They've been just ravaged by zero interest rate, um, and it's been terrible. It's cheap as the Citibank is. I think that the whole um, Japanese, the topics, financials, trade at point four times book or something. It's just, it's just dirt cheap, dumb. Um, and what I think is that we're experiencing with this inflation and this move off of zero, we're going to, we're going to see more and more real economic activity and that those banks are going to start to going back to making money like they used to. And that the whole post COVID zero interest rates, sell all these kind of, financials and buy um, tech stocks, it's almost the, it's almost going to be the reverse. 
we're going to see you continue to sell your tech stocks and you buy the things that, that uh, have done so badly for the last 12 years, which is financials. So I, I think it's, it's that simple. I think you just buy the, the financials today and you five years from now, you're, you wake up and you're surprised at how well they've done. So Main Street will do well. That is good for banks, you know, uh, lending to people, making actual loans, uh, you know, mortgages, consumer loans, credit cards, everything. Um, I, I understand that. What about the highfalutin, uh, you know, Wall Street investment banking revenues are way down, and also, you know, like for example, Goldman Sachs. Um, they've made a lot of money this even this year, uh, even though the investment banking business is is a uh, down a ton because of volatility. Oh, we'll help you hedge your oil. We'll help you hedge your interest rates. If twenty twenty two is a boring year, as you as you forecast, uh, I imagine that might not be so good for the the sales and trading teams uh, at Wall Street. Well, one thing I've learned is to never underestimate uh, Goldman Sachs' ability to make money. So I will not tell you to go uh, short Goldman Sachs because I think they'll always figure out ways to to make money. Um, I, I I guess you you could be right. I I it's not like I like Goldman Sachs. I'd much rather buy the Citibank and maybe a J.P. Morgan, which has more of both. Uh, Wells Fargo, th- things of that nature, and maybe even the regional banks. I, I hate it. I understand all the bear arguments. I just I, I, I look at it, though, and I think that we're going to go back to kind of your grandmother's stock market where, where they bought, you know, uh, banks and, and they own them and they did well. And, and I suspect that that's going to be more what we see in 2023. It's going to be the end of the uh uh, the tech growth stock and the and the era of the new kind of financials and and by the way the other thing I really like is industrials like like going back to your Main Street and the argument that Main Street does well I think you just buy uh, industrial companies it's 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 a return of the old stock markets and uh, and uh, you sell Fang Mat and you buy all, almost all the other stuff from the from the the nineties mm. uh, Kevin very interesting. Uh, thanks for sharing your views on 2023. Been so great having you here. People can find you on Twitter uh, at Kevin Muir. One of the very few people I know who actually, uh, your Twitter handle is just your name. Uh, and then uh, your, your company, Macro Taurus. Uh, people should go to uh, uh, themacrotaurus.com. Final question for you, Kevin. I promise this is the final one. Uh, you were bar- last a year ago, uh, you came on, said long gold, short Bitcoin. Just want to ask you about Bitcoin and, and uh, crypto. Um, so you were, your trade, uh, if, if you put it, it was correct. Uh, crypto prices have, uh, deflated massively. We've seen big scandals, uh, of, of their own. Um, what is your outlook now? I mean, if the economy goes, okay, are you still bearish going forward or what do you think? <laughs> Jackie, you cracked me up. I, I, I know I should probably expect this with the block works, but, uh, <laughs> um, Although everyone was very kind to me, I guess most of the most of the crypto folks just kind of saw he's bearish on crypto and they hit delete and they didn't watch it. Um, so here's here I'll give you another prediction, Jack. I I saw somebody the other day that uh, Bitcoin has never had two years in a row that they were down. I think in the history of Bitcoin, it's never been down two years in a row. I'll go out on a limb. I'll say we're going to have a, two years in a row down. The bond market just did it in 2021 and 22, and that had never been done in the history of the bond market or the Bloomberg bond aggregate index. And I think that uh, this will be a year for history to be made with two years in a row where we see uh, Bitcoin uh, going down. Mm -hmm. There we go. 
Uh, grim tidings. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Kevin, thanks so much. And thanks everyone for watching. Thanks. Take care. Thanks.